Darkcast Network, the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. December 25th, 1989. Mere minutes after their rushed conviction for the most heinous of political crimes, the demoralized and morose former elite power couple were dragged outside into the darkening coldness of an Eastern European winter. Located at a military base just outside of Bucharest, the ex-Secretary General of the Romanian Communist Party and his First Lady were lined up against the grey concrete wall of an army barracks and ordered to opriere, or halt. These wretched souls were Nicolae and Elena Ceausescu, the previous rulers of the Socialist Republic of Romania. Quickly understanding that each passing breath could be their last, they demanded that they be executed together, one final dictate before death came to collect them. Begrudgingly, the officer in charge of their execution granted this final wish out of a sense of pity for the old man and his wife. A terminal act of grace that was universally denied to the enemies of state, the exiled, the tortured, and the jailed of Ceausescu's communist dictatorship. So in order to end the national affliction in a more timely manner, they allowed these pitiable souls to cling to a fleeting shred of comfort before they met their maker. And in a final act of alleged solidarity with his communist brethren, Nikolai started softly singing the Marxist anthem La Internationale, humming the tune lightly as he stared down the barrel of three point-blank AK-47s. Elena, still incensed that a woman of her stature be treated so unjustly, bellowed at the gunmen that they were all sons of bitches. Seconds later, seemingly without any pretense of coordination, the shots rang out. And like the gun smoke slowly evaporating into the grey sky, communism in Romania forever dissipated. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Executing Communists on Christmas. The Deaths of Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu. Merry Christmas and hello everyone. I am your host, Gregory J. Zink, and I welcome you back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast, a place where we investigate the nexus between true crime, politics, and the dark motivations of both the powerful and the interests that oppose them. Very quickly, before we get into this episode, I would just like to alert everyone to the fact that I have officially joined a media group called the Darkcast Network. This is a collection of podcasts featuring a delicious buffet of excellent shows that tend towards the darker side of life. Darkcast shows span the realms of true crime, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, and darkly obscure occult topics. In this vein, Smoke-Filled Rooms is grateful to be a part of their roster, and I will do everything in my power to do well by my podcaster brethren. 
I additionally recommend checking out the DarkCast Network's content lineup by heading into my show notes and clicking some of the links. Now, let us get into my Christmas gift to you, dear listener, a generous Yuletide portion of Schadenfreude as we learn about some dead commie bastards from the dustbin of history. A Romanian paratrooper captain named Ionu Boioro, decades after his infamy was solidified as an executioner, is noted as saying, quote, Any revolution demands blood, and it eventually eats its heroes. You cannot forget this reality. End quote. And for 24 long, dark, and cold-blooded years, a dictatorial husband and wife partnership of Nicolae and Elena Ceausescu ruled over Romania with iron fists. Beneficiaries of their own revolution that started their term in 1965, they hypocritically championed a hardline Marxist-Leninist approach to governance. This was while simultaneously, they lived lives of unrivaled decadence, the likes of which the average Romanian couldn't fathom in their bleak and gray realities. The Ceausescu's had seven-course meals on the finest of China. The people? Well, they had breadlines and singular spoons. The Communist Party elite? They had lavish ballroom affairs with champagne, caviar, and French desserts. The people, however, would be lucky to share a bottle of vodka together in their apartment block with a lone rusty guitar playing. The political hierarchy in Romania enjoyed expensive luxury cars, the finest designer clothes, and the freedom to jet-set around the globe on state funds. The people, however, got hobbled by public busing, drab uniform textiles, and heavily restricted movements that depended on the friendliness of the destination they wanted to travel to. For it's a story as old as politics itself. Do as I say, not as I do. Though this was somewhat more egregious than other political systems. For Romania was alleged to be a society dedicated to radical egalitarianism and the elimination of class divisions. Consider the first segments of their constitution. Article 1. Romania is a socialist republic. The Socialist Republic of Romania is a state of working peoples from cities and villages, sovereign, independent, and unitary. Article 2. All power in the Socialist Republic of Romania belongs to the people, free and master of their own destiny. The power of the people is based on the worker-peasant alliance. In close union, the working class, the ruling class in society, the peasantry, the intelligenista, the other categories of working people, regardless of nationality, build the socialist order, creating the conditions for the transition to communism. And Article 3. In the Socialist Republic of Romania, the ruling political force of the entire society is the Romanian Communist Party. And within this framework, the Ceausescu's had no problem in exploiting the power imbalance within this reality as they also enshrined a cult of personality around their dear leader. One who presented himself as not only a Romanian patriot superman, 
but also a national savior, one who acted as vanguard against the evils of Western imperialism, global capitalism, and at least rhetorically, Soviet domination. But in 1989, as the tide began to turn against global communism, various revolutions across Europe occurred and regained independence from the USSR. Meanwhile, the Romanian dictator and his dictatress held fast to their power, for they believed they could weather the storm and avoid the fates of the crumbling Warsaw Pact nations. In November of 1989, the world watched the domino effect throughout Eastern Europe as Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, and East Germany all discarded their Marxist shackles and symbolically destroyed the Berlin Wall. And even more surprisingly still, these revolutions were largely peaceful affairs where mass showings of support led to the downfall of various communist regimes. Yet Romania, it remained steadfast during the fall of nations. It did not budge during the neighboring revolutions and gave every indication that these mass movements would not be handled peacefully if played out under the Ceausescu regime. For in December of 1989, after the Soviet Union had willfully given up control of their satellite states, Romania defiantly stood alone as the remaining communist state. This very defiance would not only prove foolish, but also quite deadly for both the protesters and the ruling family of Romania. Ultimately, after a hastily conducted military tribunal, the Ceausescus were dragged outside a military encampment and summarily executed for their crimes against the Romanian people, and on Christmas Day no less. But how did it come to this? Why was this seemingly drastic and inhumane step necessary? And what would this do to the cult of personality Nikolai had imbued within the country? Before we answer these questions, let's go back to when it all started to rapidly crumble. December 21st, 1989. Nikolai, amidst the increasing international attention given to the European anti-communist revolutions, was set to give an intentionally propagandistic speech in downtown Bucharest. It was somewhat of an annual tradition wherein Ceausescu would promise success and prosperity to the Romanian people. He would note the illusory gains made in the previous year, as well as the unrealistic goals for the upcoming year. And to beef up attendance for this event, civil service organizations, the military, and workers' unions were bussed in from around the country and told when to sing, when to cheer, and where to stand. And much like the previous 24 years, the dictator started his usual bullshit communist speech. But, unlike the previous two decades, the increasingly unruly crowd began to jeer and heckle the old man. Live on state television, Ceausescu began to look confused and agitated as his speech became truncated and disjointed. Mind you, this was in front of thousands of alleged followers, not to mention the hundreds of thousands watching at home on their TVs. Nikolai, he began arguing with the anonymous hecklers and staying true to his dictatorial instincts. 
să adresez mulțumiri inițiatorilor și organizatorilor acestei mare manifestări populare din București, considerând aceasta ca o Point, the television went off the air. Electromagnetic recording continued in the broadcasting van and documented this. Command communication from the ruler to the people had broken down and, as if there were a disturbance in the line, Ceausescu shouted, Allo! 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 Amidst the increasing embarrassment and potential danger of the situation, his personal security guards appear, disappear, and then finally hustled Ceausescu off the balcony. Distant in the background, if you listen very carefully, you can hear gunshots and a rabble-roused crowd becoming angry. They start chanting, Timi Siora, over and over again. Timi Sora, Timi Sora. This is a reference to the nearby city that started a protest in earnest only days earlier. Word of their revolt was spreading rapidly by word of mouth, and we will look at this in just a minute. But regarding the failed speech, it is said that in those very moments, the average Romanian saw old Nikolai for what he really was. A frail and dejected tyrant who could no longer coerce respect and obedience from the terrified masses. Mere hours later, this pathetic commie dictator was attempting to flee Romania, with every shred of his power completely lost to the mass revolt. California has the largest population in the United States and the site of some of the most famous true crime cases in history. But there's more than meets the eye to the crime in California. Join Sean, Jessica, and Charles on the California True Crime Podcast as they cover crime both infamous and overlooked from around our state, while looking at the deeper history that goes beyond beaches and movie stars. For Ceausescu's rule was based on a cult of contrived personality. He ignored the collapse of the USSR and remained convinced of his own superhuman invincibility. Indeed, the almost messianic righteousness of his Marxist cause. 
little attention was paid to the reality that his rule was intrinsically linked to his oppressive intelligence and police complex. One that ranks highly alongside the Gestapo, the KGB, and the Stasi as one of the worst terror organizations known to man. Ceausescu's political thugs were named the Department of State Security, otherwise known as the Securitate. The Securitate was in proportion to Romania's population, quote, one of the largest secret police forces in the entire Eastern Bloc. At its height, the Securitate employed some 11,000 agents and had half a million informers for a country with a population of 22 million. Under Ceausescu, the Securitate was one of the most brutal secret police forces in the world, responsible for the arrest, torture, and deaths of thousands of people." End quote. But after the wave of anti-communist revolutions in 1989, their violent threats were beginning to dissipate. The first Romanian anti-Ceausescu protests began in earnest on December 16, 1989, in Timișoara. As mentioned just a minute ago, this was the chant the angry crowd lobbed at Nicolae during his final speech. It was there that the members of the Hungarian minority rallied around the cause of Christian clergyman Laszlo Tokes. He was being systematically oppressed for promoting religious ideals and contradicting Romanian propaganda with accusations of widespread human rights abuses by the government. Initially, the protests were tiny and were not credited with support from Romanian speakers, prominent or otherwise. This greatly minimized its overall influence, and in fact, inside the sleazy and corrupt belly of the Romanian Communist Party, all things were looking pretty good for Ceausescu. He had just been elected for another five-year term in November, and was jauntily anticipating another half-decade of self-aggrandizement and totalitarian control. The police shut down the bubbling dissent in Timișoara, but the following day, the protests surprisingly resumed. Word was beginning to spread about what was happening around the continent of Europe, and the much-vaunted people of Romania, well, they wanted change. They weren't going to suffer under criminals any longer. This was the proverbial it. But for this next round of protests, Ceausescu sent in the military and the Securitate. Better to cut this movement out at the knees rather than let it stand proudly upon firm ground. Whatever was happening in the weak Soviet bloc was not going to happen in Ceausescu's Romania. It was a reckless and unnecessary state-driven escalation. But now, the city of Timișoara was ablaze, martial law was enacted, and the heavy artillery tanks entered the streets. Demonstrators and anti-government protesters defied the government curfews and disgustingly, the troops actually opened fire on their own people. Dozens were indifferently gunned down in the streets and countless scores maimed and seriously injured. This was on top of the hundreds of arrests. Conveniently out of the country while visiting the Ayatollah in Iran, Nikolai allowed his wife Alina to take control of the situation back on the home front. 
she dispatched Prime Minister Konstantin Daskalescu to Timisoara in an effort to regain control of the situation. And as a conciliatory effort, he offered to free almost all the people arrested, but was met with vicious and unrelenting protests instead, all uniformly and loudly demanding that Ceausescu resign ASAP. Shortly thereafter, an underground general strike was announced and the city came to a grinding halt. And seemingly losing their legitimacy even over the basic functions of government, the Communist Party sent in hundreds of bust-in workers to replace the strikers. Bravely for them, and hilariously for us regarding the totalitarians in power, those very same strikebreakers almost immediately sided with the anti-government protests they outright refused to aid and abet the communist powers in helping sideline their brethren. This loss of control prompted Nikolai to hastily return back to Romania in a last-ditch effort to restore the supremacy of his rule, which, again in our timeline, returns us to the aforementioned speech of December 21, 1989. After the epic embarrassment of this fiasco, Ceausescu's days were all but numbered, literally and figuratively. After flailing through some lackluster oratory, Nikolai became combative and started arguing with random heckles from the massive crowd. In attendance was a laborer and member of the active Hungarian minority protesting the communist government, Bertolan Toth. He recalls his experience during the now infamous speech. Quote, Ceausescu stopped and paused. From where I was standing well back in the crowd, at first I thought it was for some sort of dramatic effect. Then the booing began, and cries of Tia and fuck you. After this it became clear that Nikolai was unsure. It was exhilarating because this man had ruled over every aspect of our lives since before we could even remember and none of it had been good, whatever lies he spun. I was there when the people turned, and it happened instantaneously." End quote. The Ceausescu's personal security detail ushered them from the speech balcony and back inside the government building. Meanwhile, outside, a riot was developing, and the jeers turned to angry shouts and booming chants. Protesters marched through the city center of Bucharest, displaying Romanian flags with the communist insignia ripped from the middles, indicating their love of country, but not of the corrupt and oppressive Marxist regime. Remaining incalcitrant and thoroughly indignant about the situation, the Ceausescu's outright refused to compromise and again sent in the army with fully automatic weapons and a license to kill at will. The final death toll is somewhat disputed, but upper estimates say as many as 1,200 were killed that day in the neighborhoods surrounding Victoriori Street in Bucharest. A journalist writing about the unfolding historical event, Mick O'Hare of the British newspaper The Independent, notes the events of that same night. Quote, 
when columns of workers were seen heading for the city center on the night of December 21st, the Ceausescus had no option but to flee. But crucially, they delayed. The teetering leader intended to speak to the people again, and helicopters dropped leaflets telling the protesters to return home and enjoy the forthcoming Christmas feast. It was a terrible decision. Many of the population had difficulty finding enough to eat, let alone to feast on. The military began to switch sides amid the confusion. When Minister Vasil Malia either was murdered under Ceausescu's orders or took his own life, support for the regime collapsed and Ceausescu finally realized the game was up. With protesters closing in and the military no longer prepared to defend him, he fled with his wife in a dramatic escape by helicopter from the Bucharest rooftops only seconds before his pursuers reached the aircraft. End quote. The helicopter pilot was none too cooperative or empathetic, though. Likely influenced by the protests he was observing from the skies and disgusted with the heavy-handed and violent repression occurring below, he spontaneously changed routes while in the air. Instead of the predetermined rendezvous point in the city of Titu, the pilot set down in a large open field about 50 kilometers from Bucharest. He fabricated a story to Nikolai about the presence of anti-aircraft weapons in the area that could kill them en route. Better to set down and find a land transport since they were safely out of Bucharest proper. But the reality was that the pilot was not happy carrying the dictator to safety and lied about the anti-aircraft fire. While grounded though, the Ceausescus flagged down the vehicle of Nikolai Petrosur and, through the barrel of a gun, forced this man to become their spontaneous chauffeur to safety. Where exactly? Well, they weren't sure. They just had an instinct to flee and to keep moving. An Associated Press article from later that month outlined the ordeal. It notes how Ceausescu was in the front seat of the black Dacia 1301TX, and intermittently wept throughout the trip. Desperately seeking a safe haven on the run, they were nearly captured by guards at a factory while on their journey. Captive driver Petrosor is on record, noting how, quote, Ceausescu kept repeating, in my youth, there was nothing here. I did everything for them. I did everything for them. And I saw tears running down his old face. While Elena, she was seated behind me and was much calmer at times holding to my neck a cold metal object that I assumed was a pistol." End quote. And here is the ironic part of this entirely unnecessary ordeal. This communist dictator, despite the decades of oppression, the murder, starvation, human rights abuses, political imprisonments, spying, involuntary commitments to mental institutions, threats, thievery, and on and on and on. If he had just given up his title and resigned from the government, he well could have been left to a disgraced retirement or maybe even an exile on a generous budget. But no, he couldn't. He had to win and had to restore his megalomaniacal rule, ignoring even the basic tenets of what he allegedly espoused, and that is to say, the rights of the much mythologized people of the People's Republic. Nikolai could have survived the entire ordeal and likely made serious bank 
writing his memoirs. But he went far beyond poor political perceptions. It was his steadfast stances outside the confines of simple ideology that created the widespread bitterness that destroyed Romania's national will, especially in the waning years of the Cold War. During the 1980s, he instituted austerity programs that were designed to rein in the national debt. But this meant that everything from clothes to foodstuffs to everyday fuels were rationed. Shortly thereafter, Romania became the European capital for malnutrition and infant mortality. And amongst the deprivation and desperation were the Securitate forces, with the explicit goal of fostering fear and distrust among the citizens so that the state authority would never be questioned. Adding insult to injury, like many indifferent and criminal leaders, they casually displayed their decadence among the social decay. Poverty and disease were becoming commonplace throughout the country, yet an opulent and grandiose building, like the House of the Republic, was built with money they supposedly didn't even have. Indeed, previous residents of this locale were forcefully evicted from their homes so it could be built in Nikolai's preferred spot. That is one example of thousands of the criminal mismanagement under the Ceausescu regime. Ceausescu also needlessly punished his citizens by instituting policies that ignored the prevalence and transmission methods of HIV while also banning contraception. The gay community, which was obviously forced underground, dealt in a black market for condoms of all things. It was items like these that brought the matter to a head. Grieving mothers, sickly children, starving workers, and helpless and hopeless teens, all being slowly ground into dust by the authoritarian communist dictator and his wealthy, untouchable family. In Romania, it wasn't just about the ideology of democracy, capitalism, or liberal ideals that propagated their movement. It was the Ceausescu's seemingly enjoyed inflicting undue hardships on their brothers and did not understand a shred of what the average person had to endure. But getting back to our timeline, Petrosor the captive driver eventually stopped at a factory nursery where he knew some of the workers. He alerted the staff inside about having the Ceausescu's in his car and the need to detain them. So after some hasty words, they eventually coaxed Nikolai and Elena out of their car and into an office within the nursery. They were thereafter locked inside. They were transported and held in a military barracks in Targovist to await their destiny. On Christmas Day, 1989, a rushed and hastily organized tribunal of military judges was convened to enact their trial. Hey everyone, I wanted to take a break from this podcast to alert you to a brand new nonfiction book that is sweeping the Liberty community. In his debut book, The Ethics of Vaccine Passports, A Poor Bargain, Aviel Oppenheim illuminates the immoral and dehumanizing reality of the vaccine passports. This book notably chronicles the COVID vaccine crusade that tore apart the fabric of human society between 2020 and 2022. In his multifaceted analysis, Aviel delivers social commentary that explores the morality of government and the nature of liberty and humanity. 
With an academic background in psychology and a cultivated passion for political philosophy, Aviel's literary interests lie in the exploration of the human condition and the preservation of liberty. So again, as we claw our way out of the COVID regime, please remember to pick up a copy of Ethics of Vaccine Passports, A Poor Bargain by Aviel Oppenheim. Available on Amazon.com, on Kindle, hardcover, and paperback versions. Thank you, Aviel, for your dedication and insight. And now let's get back to the show. Though the outcome of their guilt was hitherto predetermined, the charges against both Elena and Nikolai Ceausescu were as follows. Charge number one, the genocide of over 60,000 victims. Charge number two, the willful subversion of state power and legitimacy by organizing armed actions against the Romanian people and the government itself. Charge number three, the untold destruction of public property by destroying and damaging buildings by explosions in cities due to his illegitimate orders. Charge number four, undermining the national economy so as to induce poverty, malnutrition, and general unwellness. And charge number five, trying to flee the country using over $1 billion of stolen money from state coffers that was deposited in foreign bank accounts. Interestingly and tellingly, Ceausescu was not charged with human rights abuses, wielding arbitrary and oppressive power, ordering untold thousands to murder, torture, and rape, or conspiracy to commit any of the official crimes. Well, aside from the singular instance of attempting to flee Romania as it was crumbling around him. And these specific charges point to the idea that the slate of elite communists who were poised to assume power once Nikolai was done away with could equally be responsible for the crimes against the country, and that they feared the future possibility of being tried in the exact same manner as Nikolai and Elena. Regardless, the trial was set to commence on the morning of December 25th, which was less than 24 hours' notice for all the parties involved. Indeed, the defense attorney assigned to the Ceausescus was notified of the affair amidst his Christmas morning breakfast with his family. This man was Niku Teodorescu, and after speaking with the leadership of the National Salvation Front, this was the group leading the transition to a post-communist Romania, he agreed to take on the case because of the challenges it presented. He was given the whole of 15 minutes to discuss strategy with his newfound clients. Under extreme time restraints, which again could be considered generous if looking at it from Nikolai's victim's perspective, the lawyer advised the Ceausescus to simply plead insanity. For this could be their last-ditch attempt to salvage their lives and give the tribunal some sort of lofty excuse to dismiss them. But dictators gonna dictate. The Ceausescus brazenly scoffed at the ridiculous concept, and according to attorney Teodorescu, quote, when I suggested this idea, Elena in particular said it was an outrageous setup, and that they felt deeply insulted. They also rejected my help after this point. End quote. 
And not only was the trial an extremely short-lived affair, but one marked by fiery rhetoric and a denial of legitimacy by all sides. For Ceausescu refused to acknowledge the supremacy of the court in the exact same way that the court refused to acknowledge his dictatorial powers. The deciding factor was that the military now sided with the people and against the Ceausescu regime. They now had the guns. Lasting approximately an hour, the Ceausescus argued that the rashly assembled tribunal went against the constitution that he instituted in 1965, insisting further still that only the Great National Assembly had any recognizable powers to remove him as the sovereign of Romania. This is despite the fact that his body of alleged government supporters was largely a rubber stamp for his singular agenda and one that feared bloody reprisals from the Securitate if they didn't acquiesce to his wishes. Nikolai additionally made accusations that this was a Soviet conspiracy to depose him and, after this assertion, his own defense attorney joined the prosecution in hurling incriminations against the Ceausescus. And although he doesn't deserve it, and just to be clear, no proof was offered in the allegations against Nikolai Orlina. Rather, their arguments were based solely upon received wisdom and circumstantial rhetoric. The prosecution's case was, in hindsight, largely accurate, and by this I mean near completely accurate, but it was done in a completely unprofessional manner. Hearsay, personal opinions, and press reports were all welcomed by the tribunal during the proceedings, which again, I have to restate, is quite unprofessional, but completely in line with what Ceausescu himself did while he was in power. Post-hoc analysis of the situation noted some interesting contingencies to the hearing. While regime supporters would call it a show trial in the vein of Roland Freisler or Vasily Ulrich, Romanian independence fighters would call it expedited, eye-for-an-eye justice. So let's look over the list of legal shortcomings that the trial presented. Number one, the trial commenced without investigation, evidence, or disclosure. Number two, despite Romanian law, the suspects were denied psychiatric evaluation. Number three, the accused did not select their own legal representation. Number four, the genocide charge was never proven or even attempted to corroborate. Item 5. The accusation of stealing $1 billion in state funds and stashing it in offshore accounts was never proven and was never found. Number 6. There were no available mechanisms for appealing the charges. Number 7. Though the tribunal verdict allowed for appeal to a higher court, the Ceausescus were executed only minutes after the verdict. Number 8. The handwritten tribunal decree created by the acting leader Ilescu was drafted in a lavatory in the Romanian Ministry of Defense. And number 9. After the Ceausescus were executed, the death penalty was abolished in Romania, but despite the law stating no fewer than 10 days was to be the minimum holding period before capital punishment. So overall, this wasn't exactly the shining example of idealistic justice. Far from it, in fact. Regardless, though, 
the Ceausescu defense lawyer repeatedly insisted that the couple plead insanity as perhaps the only way to avoid a gallows justice. And that was even a low-odds proposition. Predictably, they were none too cooperative with the concept. They lashed out against the suggestion and refused to accept the legitimacy of the courtroom. Perhaps with sound reasoning to their credit. Yet this didn't make a difference to the tribunal, who already signed their death warrants. The Ceausescus were accused of killing thousands of people during the revolution and in the years before. This was a show trial. After 90 minutes, it ended with the Ceausescu's being sentenced to death. Everybody went out of the courtroom and I was left alone with them. A lieutenant colonel entered the room and ordered me to take them out separately and shoot them. But they said no, they wanted to die together. Then I asked the officer to grant them their last wish, to be shot together. Not going quietly into the night, Elena and Nikolai were dragged into the courtyard of the military barracks and lined up against a nondescript wall. All the while, wildly changing their attitudes from admonishment to begging to wild threats. They knew the end was at hand. Elena was the more vocal of the two. She caustically scolded the soldiers escorting them to the execution site as sons of bitches. And then, as they were released from their grips, she rhetorically asked them, quote, Why? Why are you doing this? I raised you like a mother. End quote. Both Chuchescus allegedly started to weep upon realizing that their pleas and threats were falling on deaf ears. It was at this point that Nikolai started to softly sing La Internationale in a last-ditch effort to assert his socialist bona fides and perhaps gain a semblance of empathy from a fellow comrade in the vicinity. None was to be reached, though. The commander in charge asked for five armed volunteers and three were randomly selected. The man who would later become the most widely known of the three executioners was Ayano Biro. He was an elite paratrooper who volunteered for the spontaneous mystery mission only the previous day. And in later interviews, says he still gets nervous thinking about the Chuchescus in their final moments. He was present during the trial he helped lead the couple to the courtyard to line them up against the wall and ultimately to gun them down with his Kalashnikov on Christmas afternoon. In a 2017 interview, Ayanol is noted as saying that, quote, it's two lives that I ended. It's a big deal. In a war, it's okay, but when you kill unarmed people, it's more difficult. I wouldn't wish this on anyone, even though my job is killing people. End quote. His internal justification for this somber and grotesque task 
was deeply personal and, ironically, somewhat religious in nature. Ayano further explained that, quote, My grandfather, he was a priest, a liberal. He was in prison for a lot of his life. He, of all people, was really happy after those events, happy that the regime had changed and that Ceausescu was killed. He even told me often, Son, don't worry about your deeds. I will take all your sins upon myself. End quote. Ultimately, and upon retrospection, Ayano assuredly believes that it was his bullets that killed both the Ceausescus. This is because of how his fellow executioners handled the moment. The gunman to his right froze for several seconds before opening fire on the Ceausescus, and the executioner to his left had initially put his AK-47 on the semi-automatic setting, which he claimed only allowed him to pull off a few rounds before he switched it over to the fully automatic setting and really started unloading. Ayano claims that it was his hail of bullets that put them out of their misery, noting that, quote, I shot them very fast, and I feel I helped them to die with dignity, end quote. The execution was like all other things that day, hastily done and poorly carried out. They started firing before the camera was even turned on, so the resulting footage is the last several shots being heard while the cameraman advances toward a thick cloud of concrete dust that was kicked up by the shots. After getting within 20 feet of the bodies, Nikolai and Alina's corpses lay on the freezing cold pavement, blood pooling around their bodies as the shot cuts to what appears to be an army doctor inspecting the corpses to ensure their death. The release of the video itself was most obviously a dual-pronged propaganda technique. The first part was to assure the international community that Ceausescu was dead and that Romania would go in a different political direction. The second was to act as a pressure release valve for the internal stability of the Romanian people. After all, they were in the midst of a bloody crackdown where the army and securitate were slowly defecting to the new government. So showing the country they had definitively dealt with the problem, cutting off the head of the snake as it were, would hypothetically give some credence to the revolution and its aim of widespread change. And to this day, you can go to a military cemetery in Bucharest Sector 6 and still go to see the graves of Elena and Nicolae Ceausescu for yourself. And contrasting their lavish lifestyle they led as Romania's most elite couple, their grave plots are common and regular. This is aside from the seeming omnipresence of flowers and photos placed by family and actual fans of Ceausescu. Even in contemporary times, decades after his execution, many involved have deep-seated reservations about the entire incident. Valentin Ceausescu, who is Nikolai and Elena's eldest son, is adamant that they should have just been shot without trial somewhat accepting the evilness of his parents, while also rejecting the faux legalism of the proceedings. President Iliescu, who took over once the Ceausescus were dead, is on record saying that the trial and execution were quite shameful but necessary. And even their appointed defense attorney agrees with this sentiment. But he now says that if the new Romanian government hadn't done this, the Ceausescus and their entire families would have been lynched by roving mobs in the streets. 
So at a bare minimum, their deaths closed a painful chapter and offered some semblance of closure to a battered and beaten people. And finally, in November of 2010, in an attempt to once and for all squash the conspiracy theories that the Ceausescus were not actually executed, but rather were airlifted to secret locations and put into an elite protection program, their bodies were exhumed from the cemetery. After extensive DNA testing, it was confirmed that it was in fact the body of Nikolai Ceausescu, but the results for Elena were inconclusive because of bodily decay. Regardless, their corpses were relatively recognizable and family members confirmed their likeness. Indeed, Nikolai Ceausescu was, and forever will be, interred in his coffin wearing the same black jacket he was executed in, dozens of bullet holes, and soaked in dried blood. Thank you for listening to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Merry Christmas, and we'll see y'all back in 2023 for more of the political realm's worst. Cheers. Witchcraft. The occult. Extremist beliefs. Murder. Tune in to Rogue Darkness each Friday and join host Raven as I uncover horrific crimes committed under the misconceptions and misunderstandings of witchcraft and other belief systems. I'll cover a wide range of crimes involving ritualistic killings and extremist beliefs to cult persuasion and supposed possession. Anything and everything that borders the line of horrifying. There's always three sides to a story. Side A, side B, and then the truth. Let's uncover the truth together and explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. Available wherever you get your podcast fix, simply by searching Rogue Darkness. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and Crypto Appreciation Jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smoke Filled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening. Darkcast Network, the light shines brightest on our indie podcasts.